0: Hey everybody! Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner uh, and Pillar co-founder Ed Condon. And I'm a little bit ticked at Ed right now. Um, Ed, do you know? Oh, do you, do you know? I mean, do you, do you know what you've done?
1: I have no idea,
0: but um, I, I'm going to go
1: out on a limb and say I was probably right. So I'm just going to double down ahead of a game.
0: Well, what Ed did is right before we started recording this podcast, um, Ed got Stacy's mom stuck in my head. The song (laughs) "Stacy's Mom" has got it going. You guys know that song, right? Ed got Stacy's mom, um, the song, and I I don't know if Stacy or her mom, but Ed got Stacy's mom uh, stuck in my head, and uh, and now Ed, whenever it is that you're talking about, whatever it is, the things that you intend to talk about. I'm just gonna be singing Stacy's mom to myself, and it's your fault.
1: I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I want to point Stacey, out,
0: Stacy, can I come over? I can't. I'm not going to go
1: into how that song popped into your head, but it's
0: your fault. I mean, you would it, agree that it's your fault.
1: I would agree. It's uh, my something I said Thank was mm-hmm. caused the dominoes to fall to lead you to that. But I, right. I did so not spontaneously myself bring that song to your attention. So.
0: No, you didn't spontaneously bring it to my attention. But you're nevertheless responsible, and. Uh, and so I'm a little bit irritated. I mean, so if I seem a little bit punchy today, um, that's what's going on. You know that um, Fountains of Wayne. You know, Stacy's mom, of course, is a is, is a Fountains of Wayne. I'm, I'm going to feel foolish if that's not true. But Stacy's mom is a Fountains of Wayne song, right? I have no idea. Yeah, Stacy's mom is. I just looked it up a Fountains of Wayne song. And uh, here's a little something cool. Do you know uh, how the band Fountains of Wayne got its name? No. The band members are from New Jersey and. They're from the part of sort of northern New Jersey um, that is near uh, to Wayne, New Jersey. I'm familiar with Wayne, New Jersey. mm -hmm. And there used to be on, I don't know, maybe 280, I don't know what road, but there used to be on some um, road in proximity to Wayne, New Jersey, a fountain store named Fountains of Wayne, which as they formed a band, um, they drove by. And that is as profound as it gets.
1: Um. Okay. I, I, your your knowledge of this particular band is That's rem- it. That's remarkable. everything. I mean, if you have no, one more question about Fountains of Wayne, I will be revealed. Yeah, but it's already above the median, I'd say. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is on the same morning in which you confessed to me that you didn't know who Paul Weller was. So
0: Yeah, is that the guy uh, who played keyboard on David Letterman? Paul, he was a take it away, Paul, or what have you? No, that was Paul Schaefer. Okay, well, I mean, you can see how I would. No,
1: I wouldn't. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, okay. Never mind. Never mind. Disappointing.
0: Okay. What are Who's we talking Paul about? Today? No. 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 Before we do that, nobody. Nobody else knows either. That's nobody. not true.
1: Everyone knows who Paul Weller is. Paul Weller okay. was the the was the musician for the band The Jam. I mean, he's one of the the mod father. I mean, he is. Oh
0: yeah, totally. It, you know, it's just that I. It's just that. um when I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, I wasn't, wasn't listening to the jam. Ed, our, people who listen to our show, um, you know, I don't know if they're going to know that. I weep for the future. I... <laughs> By the way, before we get started, and um, I realize that we've already gotten pretty well started on some serious topics, but before we get started, I owe you an apology. And um, Did you know that? Did you know that I owe you an apology?
1: Nope. I'm as in the dark on this as I am uh, on, on what I've done recently to, to get early 2000s pop songs stuck in your head.
0: Okay. Well, last week I, um, I I made a bad translation of the code oh, of Canons of yeah, the Eastern Churches. We were, translating, churches. The we were code. translating the Eastern code of canon law, and I had a bad translation, and I didn't realize I didn't. My endings were off in my mind, and those words were ablatives, and I didn't think they were ablatives, and I was wrong. Just uh, the way that I read it was wrong, and um, and a, a number of Latinists have reached out to me both, um with you, but also sort of privately to tell me that I'm wrong. And one Dutch Latinist sort of reached out to me to tell me that if 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 I wanted, he'd be happy to sort of go through um, some case endings with me. So that was nice. Um, but I, I, I have to admit to you that I was wrong. Your translation was correct. Um, you know, interestingly, your translation is better than the translation that the sort of published code of uh, Eastern code um, has as well. So, um, mazel um Tov, I guess. Thank you. I, I mean, whose translation were we using when we were running through it? Well, yours, and then I challenged your translation, and I challenged your translation based on my read, and then based on the, I, I suppose that is this probably the CLSA translation.
1: I'm not saying that I'm better than the CLSA because they are a worthy.
0: I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't. They are, say they that like are that. very. Worthy. I would not say such things if I were you. I'm not saying. I'm saying
1: <laughs> I'm not saying that.
0: The CLSA guys is the Canon Law Society of America are as Canon Lawyers are sort of professional trade associations. So, you know, um and I like to um uh, you know I don't I I have enough I have enough um enemies at the moment, enough people who are just – who are unhappy with um the songwriting combo of Condon and Flynn or Flynn and Condon, if you will, and I don't need to add the Canon Law Society of America. I, I have to professional society of which I have been a member since I was 22 years old, I do not need to add them to our list of nemesis. So please do not say that you are I'm better not. than They're the S- an August
1: S- institution. I I have at different times in my life been a member. I, some of my best friends I, are members I of the I CLSA, actually, J.D. I actually
0: think some of my best friends are members of the CLSA. Um, I think actually, so are mine, but I actually, I think my membership has lapsed. I think I forgot to send the money last year. So I think I think I have to re-up my, uh, my membership. But I, I consider myself nevertheless to be a member and i just i don't want to add them to the uh, no if you had told me at the time
1: when we were doing dueling translations that i was up against the official clsa translation i would have immediately yielded i would have lost the courage (laughs) of my convictions and i would have said well i must be wrong
0: well you weren't wrong i was wrong the clsa was uh, seemingly mistaken and that's that's the way it goes so uh well done and I, i i i told those who told me this that i would acknowledge this to you on the show and i don't want to um be a welcher so that's what it is
1: well it's very big of you and my latin is very poor so that i that i read it right was more luck
0: than judgment well here's something about latin and actually you're you're better about this than i am the the key to keeping good latin um is just doing it right so um the, the more latin you read the better your latin is and um and i just don't make myself read latin very often anymore and i think you have a tendency when you read the code of canon law to start with the latin and then uh to try and translate it and then if you need the translation of the english to go to the translation of the english but that's uh that's commendable and probably the reason why your latin was in that case better than mine
1: I, I could not have grammatically told you like when they found it, it was there were two ablatives that clearly mm-hmm. agreed with each other and not with the rest of the descriptive list of the paragraph we were reading and i could not have explained to you grammatically why i arrived at the translation that i did it was reflexive through reading and i think that's true i mean i i do tend to defer to latin first when reading the code to try and keep it going and i do the same thing with my with my breviary um as well anyone who's got uh the universalis app you can set it to side by side latin and english to do the liturgy of the hours and i and i do that again not because i'm worthy or anything like that, but just because, you know, if you if you keep the daily reading up, it, you know, it just keeps the habit alive, I guess.
0: I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, great. Well, there are plenty of other small talks that I would like to have with you, but, um, you know, uh, if we have too much small talk, we're going to hear it. If we don't have enough small talk, we're going to hear it. But at any rate, we'll, we'll come back to the small talk. I There are things that I want to talk about going on in the life of the church, and one thing that I'm kind of excited about is we're going to talk about something cool. We're going to talk about some good news which you know I mean we don't always we don't always do um but uh there is something cool that you reported on this week um that is kind of a um a new development in a sort of trending movement within priestly formation and uh and I think it's cool and we can kind of talk about what it is and then we can talk about yes there's some inside baseball and some politics connected to it and we can talk about those but let's just talk about the thing first
1: yeah okay so the the thing that I think you're talking about is um the uh, the beginning of the academic year this Wrong. week...
0: No, I'm just kidding. You, yes, that's the thing.
1: Okay. Uh, the, the academic year began in many places this week, uh, including at uh, the Seminary of St. Patrick's in Menlo Park, California, in the Archdiocese of San Francisco, where incoming students uh, studying for the priesthood, either for the Archdiocese or for other dioceses that send their seminarians to St. Patrick's, um, are beginning a, a new program of formation that Archbishop Corleone has instituted what we call in the game a propedeutic year or a spirituality year to kick off the the new classes, seminary studies. And what this involves basically is before you get into the academics, before you start taking philosophy or theology or anything like that, they're spending a year doing what Archbishop Corleone told me he wants to think of as sort of a novitiate for the diocesan priesthood um uh, and he also called it sort of a year of um cultural detox that you know people are coming in out of the world out of living in the world which is everything that it is these days um and he said that he thinks it's very important that guys are not just prepared to study but prepared to be prepared to study and that part Mm -hmm. of the way you do that is what they're doing now um which is to give them this year which will have a, a very strict um Regimen of daily prayer, Eucharistic adoration, um, development of an interior life, of of a sort of discipline of spirituality, but also um, a really long and immersive
0: experience of ministry to and with the poor. Consistent. So it's it's not like they're going to go on a long mission trip, but consistent ministry to the poor during the course of this year.
1: Right. Right, Um, A series of long retreats. You know the spiritual exercises of Saint Ignatius, and and also a technology fast, which is you know I thought really cool. Um, you know, no no phones, no computers, no social media, none of that stuff for six days a week. I think they get a, an hour or two on Saturday morning to mm-hmm. you know answer emails and catch up and stuff. And that the purpose of all of this is so that. Uh, you, you form healthy spiritual habits and discipline and also fraternity because the class is living separately during this year. Living um, together but not with the rest of the seminarians. Exactly. Kind of they're, at the moment they're in to... a, a separate wing of the seminary but they're, they're raising funds I think at the moment to build a separate house on campus for this to happen. And, and I mean it just it sounds like a really great idea. And I mean San Francisco are starting it this week they started on. I think Tuesday was the first day of school. Uh, they're by no means the first U.S. diocese to do this. Uh, Archbishop Corleone was telling me that he got his inspiration for this program from um, the Seminary of Saint John Vianney in Denver. Uh, I talked to the formation team there, and they've been doing it for twenty-three years now. Like, I mean, that, mm-hmm. and that's something I thought was really cool. Is it's been going since ninety-eight, I think, and um, uh, Father. Father Wagner or Father Wagner. I don't know how um, how he goes in for the pronunciation. Wagner, Father Wagner. Okay, Father Wagner. It's, Vog- it's
0: a little bit odd because I didn't cover this story, but uh, Father Wagner, Bra- who I, Father Bra- Brady... Father Wagner was my student in the seminary many, many, a, a very long time ago. And uh, and so... Uh,
1: well, I can tell you exactly how long ago because this is one of the cool things that um, we were talking about when I when I was speaking to him. was He that was
0: talking that about my class because I'm not too sure if he paid attention to be perfectly candid. No,
1: he didn't mention you, actually. Um, mm-hmm. But he was talking about his experience of this propodutic year because they brought it in in 98. He was there in 2004 as a student and now he's back as part of the formati- formation team. And one of the things he said is, you know, yeah, it's great preparing guys to study in the seminary, to have this, um, this sort of foundational year for personal development and discernment and everything else before going into sort of the full academic program. But also it's about forming fraternity. And he said, you know, that this is one of the concerns that a lot of guys come into seminary with is, you know, they're aware that there just aren't as many vocations as there were. There aren't as many priests as there used to be in ministry, that what used to be the common reality of priests having an experience of common life in ordinary parish ministry, so you'd have Two, three, four, sometimes five priests living in a rectory together for a single parish. Like that's disappeared by and large. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Usually it's now a guy on his own, or if they're lucky, it's two guys. And he said, you know, that this is this is a concern for guys coming into the seminary there, you know, especially in front of, you know, weighing seriously the celibate life of never getting married. Uh, they're, they're saying, you know, well, am I I know I'm signing up for celibacy, but am I signing up for a life of loneliness? You know, because that right, that right. sounds really hard. Right. And so part of what this initial spirituality here does as well is because there's this sort of technology fast and a breaking from sort of the. The, the online crazy of the world. It helps also form fraternity amongst the guys yeah. and that this continues through their seminary years and also out of, um, out of their seminary years and into ministry, that there's still this, you know, close knit group of guys that, you know, from your seminary class on whom you can rely, who you can yeah. call, who mm-hmm. you can, you know, still have the sort of bond of common fraternity with, which is really important. And he was talking to me about the documents of the second Vatican council, and the sacred fraternity of the priestly ministry that, you know, mm-hmm. in, you know, we are a people that, you know, the Lumen Gentium, I think it is, you know, speaks about, you know, we are reminds us that we are called as a people that you know, no mm-hmm. one is a Christian alone. And right. it's the same with the presbyterate that, you know, there's, you know, you're not, you're not a hermit priest. That you, unless you you're just, a hermit priest. Well, unless you're, unless you're actually a hermit priest. But the, the diocesan priesthood is not <laughs> a hermetical, hermetical priesthood, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So
1: it's very And so that was, that was really great. And I, I mean, there are other seminaries that, that do the same thing. I know Mundelein does it. I think also um, the, the seminary in Philadelphia does it, that this is, you know, catching on more and more and it it seems to be growing in popularity the The results at least from the people yeah. that I spoke to seem fairly self evident that this is you know answering a need
0: and producing mm-hmm. good results i'm I'm pretty interested in the results uh, just yeah I, I just to sort of fill in a little bit more of the history actually because I, as you might know, kind of live in Denver and have done various things kind of around the seminary, and so i've been sort of watching that spirituality year here grow and I've been glad to see that you know, Mundelein launched one, and and other places have launched one, and now the now St. Patrick's is, has launched one. Um, uh, because I've seen, um, I've observed um, the 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 sort of long term, I think, benefit of it in in priests that I know who I who I saw sort of go through it as early seminarians, and the idea of this spirituality here is just um, a, as sort of Archbishop Corleone said, a kind of um, novitiate, and by that I think he means a kind of immersive period um, oriented and focused on the development of the interior life. Um, that's what a religious novitiate is supposed to be, a really immersive, intense, um, not sort of emotionally intense, but a, a, a intense and sort of structure um, period that is designed to develop the habits of prayer that can become um, lifelong habits of prayer. And, you know, there are a couple other things that I, I don't know if this is true at the um, at the, uh, it will be true in the San Francisco one, but um, there are a couple other things that I've observed in seminary spirituality years that there's a component of um, of of manual labor, of physical labor that is both sort of um, routine and 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 uh, and humility and those kinds of things of doing of having a set of um, sort of ongoing kind of maintenance and cleaning and those kinds of things tasks, and then also the physicality of it. So one thing about this is that the, the a spirituality your house is um, is a house of a bunch of guys, sort of like. Somewhere and probably mostly in their 20s. Um, it's just a house of a lot of you know, energy and testosterone and these kinds of things. And so to have uh, uh, to develop a healthy interior life, a healthy prayer life is also to develop healthy uh, physical habits, right? I mean, so to just be to just have uh, both sort of labor and recreation and exercising recreation, these kinds of things. So um, all of those things together it, in a certain way. Um, the spirituality, I think, is is designed, uh, you know, and, and I think what Archbishop Cordileone was talking about the human formation component of it is designed. I think, and seminaries are learning this more and more to develop like a whole set of things that could correlate to a healthy humanity that uh, that people don't, I think, often have the the opportunity to kind of uh, get, um, or, or people less and less have the opportunity to get, and fractured families and the influence of kind of like TV as a babysitter and and, and, and these kinds of things. And even uh, if nobody teaches you how to pray, you you don't learn how to pray. I mean, that's just certainly the experience of my own life, that, um, how, that um, one sort of intuitive sense of how to pray or the sort of natural or even supernatural religiosity that comes without direction or help or formation um, only goes so far. The fact is that l- learning how to have a committed, relationship of prayers, not just building up the habits, but sort of learning what to do with them. Like, I, I remember, um, you know, inviting a friend to come with us to Eucharistic Adoration, and, you know, we went, and they thought it was beautiful, and, you know, they kind of were impressed. They'd never seen anything like that, and then the guy kind of leans over to me and says, like, well, what do I do? You know, and, um, and, and it's a totally fair and valid and reasonable question. Here I am in front of the, the Blessed Sacrament, and this seems cool. What do I do? And um, the desire is, uh, is a grace— but the desire alone is not sort of sufficient to uh, to, to to answer that question and, uh, and and anyway my point is that that comes with a whole sort of set of healthy uh, you know of, of like as a were human formation that 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 leads to and this sounds kind of dopey when i say it, but sort of healthy humanity or a full sort of expression of lived humanity so um so the, the emergence of this as a as a um as an aspect of priestly formation which i think Goes back to, to encouragement from the Holy See in the mid eighties, and then I think probably one of the first seminaries that really took up the idea of a propedeutic year. By the way, propedeutic just means preliminary before the other things. Um, but a propedudic year of spirituality uh, probably, I think, was uh, the um, Notre Dame Seminary in Paris and and um, Cardinal Lustiger, who had a lot of ideas about um, about seminary formation. I, I think that's probably the um, the genesis of the of the of, of the sort of modern form of the spirituality year. But this idea of sort of immer- an immersive period of Christian formation, and especially spiritual formation, is awesome. And uh, you know, part of it, you hear about it and you sort of think, well, of course, why wouldn't every seminary want this? And we can actually talk about why every seminary wouldn't want it. But also just sort of like, um, in what ways can, can an idea like that, the recognition that young people who want to live the Christian life would benefit from that, translate beyond seminary formation to uh, sort of broad set of formation. I mean, like, when I kind of talk with people about spirituality, or the thing I'm most interested in is, like, how might the church extend the notion of a spirituality or beyond priestly formation into the formation of ordinary Catholics?
1: No, you're absolutely right. And I I mean, this is one of the—it's an interesting thing that you bring that up, because when I was talking to Archbishop Corleone, that's one of the things he said, is that this is about—this um, th- isn't a way about best practice. This isn't a way about doing the most that you can for these guys as they're coming in and looking forward to the best possible formation you can give them. But it also is looking to address what he called the signs of the times that there's, there are clear needs. And, you know, he was saying that, you know, there's a, there's a certain level of spiritual formation in catechesis that perhaps in previous decades or in previous generations, really uh, there was a little more of that you could expect. It's sort of just coming out of baseline Catholic family and parish practice that you don't necessarily see now. And so there is an element of sort of remedial formation uh, prior Mm -hmm. to entering seminary that that this sort of initial phase, this initial year would, would give. But of course, if part of, you know, the natural conclusion that you come to saying, well, if this is addressing a sort of remedial lack of something that, you know, you used used to be present or at least used to be more normal and isn't there now, that lack isn't just present in the guys presenting themselves with vocations uh, in in the seminary. It's present for everybody. So everybody needs Mm -hmm. this, that it's, and and I think this is absolutely true. You know, there's, I mean, when you think about our, our grandparents' generation certainly would have, I think, in, as part of ordinary Catholic Parish practice would have had a a more set, a more normal understanding of various kinds of uh, prayer life and devotionals, even if not necessarily perfect grasp of all the theology behind it. But there was a sort of more normal practice of personal prayer. Um, you know, you you hear the sort of apocryphal stories of, well, what do you do during the old old mass? Well, you pray your rosary. You know that there was there was a reflexive understanding of how you of how to pray mm-hmm. and the cultivation of an interior. Uh, life that way even if it was just sort of reflexive and, and and sort of at a basic level so i think recovering that for the average catholic and the pews is is not just needed it's just you know it would be of incalculable benefit to the good of souls that you know my interior life is garbage half the time and i try and pray as often as i can that you know we we need this we all need this because you can't make sense of the world um externally if you don't have an internal life if you don't have uh, a, a spirituality, because it's through that sort of personal spiritual life that you begin to form the real dialogue with God through prayer. That that's how you develop the the sort of quote unquote personal relationship with God. That you know can can be the foundation for one hopes sincere conversion of
0: heart. Yeah, I don't know how much it, I think it is recovery. I, I mean, I, I do think you're right that you know. Um, probably, um, you know, a big part of it, a big part of what Archbishop Cordeleone talks about is the technology fast, and I think probably everyone, including we, underestimate the sort of impact of the kind of technological ubiquity that exists now, now, the screen ubiquity and these kinds of things, and connectivity ubiquity and these kinds of things. I think we radically underestimate the sort of um, broad psychological and sociological changes that it's affecting. So in that sense, yeah, I think in the past, those things being absent, um, and the sort of existence, the more frequent existence of popular, you know, various kinds of popular pieties that I think are important, and and those things translating into private devotions, all of that is true. But at the same time, you know, it's also true that the Second Vatican Council articulates something, which is not novel, but which is newly expressed and newly emphasized, namely the universal call to holiness, and the idea that um, it, it's not a new idea, and all you have to do is read you know, introduction to devout, devout life or any other spiritual master to recognize. It's not a new idea that all Catholics, all Christians are called to divine intimacy, but there is a way in which um, I think an understanding of the importance of developing, um, continuing to develop and continuing to grow um, in the interior life, and then for that to sort of flow out into um, evangelical and apostolic activity it is sort of, I think, being reemphasized or re-spoken of in a new way. And the other thing is, I don't think that the, the the attraction of something like this is that it's a sort of like return to a, a, a fetishized past, which I know is not what you're saying. But I think there's a way in which something like this could be perceived to be like something like that. And more I think it's uh, um, being equipped for um, uh, having both like the resources and habits and defenses in a certain way for engaging in the modern world and, and like appreciating the, uh, the unique challenges of modernity especially sort of technological challenges and those kinds of things, but also having like the certain kind of like um, limits, interior limits and and um, and interior sort of disciplines that allow one to be in that without being of that. Yeah, I think that's right. I, yeah. I, would, I would agree with that. And so what I've kind of been wondering about, I, I want to talk about the politics and, and inside baseball of this in a little bit, but what I've kind of been wondering about is like, what, I mean, Ed, uh, w- w- there is not um, a, a sort of... Um, Secular analog of the spirituality year, by which I mean a lay analog of the spirituality. Year. Oh, a lay um, analog. I, yeah, a lay analog. Well, S- I suppose it would be that, that sort of
1: bizarre BS of mindfulness.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. In fact, it depends how you're using secular. But in a certain way, the spirituality year is a secular analog. It of is for the secular Nobisian, clergy. And that is For yes. secular clergy. Um, yes. But I so I, so it all depends how you're using the word. But there is not a lay um, a, a, an immediately coming to mind lay analog. Um, for me, of a spiritual year, I do think there are ways in which some lay people have the benefit of sort of immersive experiences in spirituality, people who spend time kind of in missionary or, you know, committed missionary or apostolic work for a few periods of time, or people who, um, uh, you know, kind of absorb the cult, if they go to a sort of a Uniquely um, and devoutly Catholic college, sort of absorbing the culture of that, can become sort of the beginnings of these sorts of things. But I've been sort of thinking, like for for people who want to have the same uh, sort of benefit of developing the interior life, w- what are sort of the lessons of this of the the spirituality years that can be gleaned or translated or interpreted in your mind?
1: Ah, uh, gosh, I I don't know if it's lessons. I think a lot of it is is habit. Or,
0: yeah, habit or pattern. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: I think, and I mean, that is that is important. That you know, I, the I was always taught um, when when learning to pray that prayer is equivalent to breathing. It's an act of doing that. You just have to keep doing It's repetition. Yeah. It's life sustaining. It's you know, it's a, it's not, but it's not a thing that you you need to have um, always a perfectly dedicated intention for it. In fact, right. that's yeah. what you're that's what you're reaching for is a sort of reflexive. You know, what St. Paul talks about, you know, unceasing prayer is, you know, it should just be reflexive background prayer. And that's what a lot of the discipline of, of learning to pray teaches you, for example, with the Liturgy of the Hours, that the reason that, you know, you have a, a sort of uh, a psalter Taken from the Book of Psalms and also some of it from St. Paul, that you go through in a four-week cycle is that you. It's not that the Church doesn't have other things it could put in there, but that there's the rhythm. That there's a rhythm to it, and it's a rhythm that you learn. And so that the words of the Psalms, over praying the breviary for weeks and months and years, you learn them off by heart, and mm-hmm. so they. Right they come to you they become the reflexive language of your own internal prayer right which it, is the whole idea which is the whole idea no, part of the idea and no. is very important and you know also you know looking at the sort of spirituality that what is what they would what, what is there that's really important that i that i can see is uh the the um the adherence to a regimen that you know you get up at this time you do a holy hour you go to the tabernacle you go to mass you know and that you know okay fine lay <laughs> people don't tend to have the luxury of being able to to do all of this under one roof and in a dedicated way but you know you can form habits good habits right. gradually and right. you know you can you know, maybe you can't get to mass every day maybe you can't make a holy hour every day but you can you can find 10 minutes to do a rosary right you know and you can you can build uh, if you like a, a discipline a personal discipline of prayer that way which i think it, it's helpful i mean i remember um i was talking to a spiritual director uh, once, and you know the the thing of daily prayer and the and the regimen of prayer that I was trying to um, have take hold in my life, you know. And I said, "Well," and I you know I. He said, "Well, have you been praying?" And I said, "Well, you know, sure, kinda." Yeah. And he said, "What do you mean, kind of?" Is the prayer is not a. It, Prayer is a binary thing. Either right. you have done it or you have not. I said, right. Well, I don't think I've been praying well. Goes, I didn't. What, what is this well? What is this praying well? He said, "If I told you to call your mother every day, would you?" When right. I asked you if you did it, would you say, "Well, I didn't think I called her well." It's like it, right. it, 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 it's a binary proposition. Either you did it or you didn't. Did you pray every right. day? Did you? you know?
0: right. And I there think taking I think a sense in which kind of um, the so this sort of emotive self-assessment right. becomes the yes. motive. Oh, yeah, evaluating yeah, prayer, that rather uh, than prayer, just prayer is the, activity. Prayer. And in part, showing up, right? I mean, it's like well, exactly. That's what, what I mean. Yeah. Prayer is an activity. Prayer is
1: not a prayer. Prayer is not an art form. Right. Prayer is a thing that you do, and either you right. have done it or you have not done it. Either right. you are going to do it or you are not going to do it. Either you are doing it now or you are not doing it now. Right. And the best way to get better at it is, you know, to think of it as any other kind of exercise. That yeah. you know, repetition breeds familiarity, breeds ease of doing, breeds also better performance. You know, if that's right. how you want to think about it,
0: right? I think, yeah, that's that is right, and um, that is well said. Um, I I also think, you know, there is uh, the other aspect of the habit part that really is outstanding is the is the technology fast habit, um, whatever that looks like in ordinary life. I think increasingly that just becomes necessary not only for growth and development in in, in the spiritual life as a Christian, but just for um, sanity for like stability as a human being yeah i'm i'm trying
1: very hard to do the sort of
0: reverse propiodeutic diet so instead of a six <laughs> day a week fast i'm trying to do a one day a week a one day a week fast yeah, yeah right exactly and it's it's you know we ha- we you and i have the temptation to be connected because we're in the business of being connected but uh, that can become very easily an excuse just to sort of um, be connected right yes very much so yeah so i think setting uh, setting an idea like that Um, uh, uh, Whether it's a day or a period in each day, which strikes me as being um, both, which in my experience has proven to be all the more difficult, but also all the more valuable, a period in each day of not being connected is, is uh, hugely important um, to the extent that it can be achieved. But again, it's just the doing and, um, and not sort of being, you know, I think there are people who get nervous or anxious about it. And that I think probably tells us everything we need to know. Yeah. Yeah the, yeah,
1: the extent to which the very idea unsettles you tells you how medicinal it will be for you.
0: Right, that's precisely right. But at, at the same time, how initially purgative that medicine might prove to be, although perhaps not. Perhaps it, people will find sweet relief as soon as they give it a try. Well,
1: either way, no one no one is going to discover their life is the poorer for putting away the damn phone.
0: Right, um, except to listen to the show, obviously, and read PillarCatholic.com. Oh, I mean, clearly. That's... Yeah. Um okay, so uh so the spirituality year is something which is emerging in some dioceses and a very good thing, and something in which there's a, just a good I think reminder for all of us of the importance of the uh, of intentionality about um building the habits of prayer and also the the habits of like just um again healthy humanity tm um but there is a, an ecclesiastical political side of uh our coverage of this that is also interesting and uh, and worth kind of noting because I think there's a little bit of uh, it's it's an unusual situation to be candid. It's weird. it's very weird.
1: Um, so what's happened is this. There is there is such a thing um, in Rome in the Vatican that is issued every it, that is issued infrequently every in- infrequently
0: more, every more than more than, more than a every 10 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Not not on a regular basis. Called the Ratio Fundamentalis which is sort of the the Vatican's um, basic schema for seminary formation. What it a set of is expectations, and every
0: yeah. part of the world, everyone who's formed as a priest should be going operating according to this basic thing. Now, seminaries are different parts of the world, but this is sort of the baseline. The, yeah, the, this uh, is the
1: foundation. You know, the you're... Lex
0: Ecclesia fundamentalis, if you will. Indeed, um, <laughs> and
1: and the the most recent uh, ratió was issued in twenty sixteen. Now the timing of that is interesting because this every and so every, what
0: happens with the ratio before that
1: every diocese every episcopal conference has to do what with the ratio well, so I'm, I'm yeah so every every bishop's conference effectively um, whether it be national or regional is required to come up with its own ratio based on Rome's now in the
0: United States the USCCB has one and it's called the program for priestly formation which and, is exactly what it is It's sort of in the US. We're applying the ratio to say that priestly formation should look like this exactly, and then seminaries are, have to be guided by that,
1: right? And the 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 quote unquote current version of the program for priestly formation is the fifth edition. Now, what's interesting is the you, when when bishops conferences come up with a, their own ratio, the PPF in this case, uh, it gets sent to Rome for approval after it's adopted by the bishops' conference. Because that's part of the deal—is you know you gotta have this vote, you gotta have two thirds, you gotta get Roman approval at the final product reference. So they did all that, <laughs> um, but the, the the Roman approval comes with, if you like, a sunset clause that says we want you to you know
0: you have to update it every you have X to keep it updated.
1: Every... So the, the, there's you know the, the approval lapses at a certain point, and the approval for the fifth edition lapsed in 2015. Now they got um, an extension of another five years on that because the new. Roman Ratio was about to come out, came out the next year in 2016. So they said, well, we obviously don't want you to redraft your program of for priestly formation for 2015. and have, to, you do have, have again. to do it all again when we issue it. So they got a five-year extension. Um, that five-year extension has obviously run. Now, in 2019, at the November meeting of the USCCB in Baltimore, they presented their draft sixth edition uh, to the bishops. And the bishops voted on it, and they overwhelmingly adopted it. Um, It was presented by the chair of the Committee on Clergy, Religious, and Formation. Clergy Consecrated Life and Vocations. Vocations, that's what it is. CCLV, they call it. Thank you. Which, at the time, was Cardinal Tobin. And, you know, everybody was crazy-go-nuts-bananas for the draft they had. They had the usual thing they do at the USCCB, where the bishops got the document. It wasn't publicly released. Uh, They had some time to read it. They submitted amendments. Those amendments were sort of obliquely discussed in the open mm-hmm. session.
0: Um, and in yeah, some case, we knew there was some discussion going on back in 2019 about aspects of this, but um, it's a funny thing when the bishops discuss amendments to documents because you know, they're talking about them, but you don't always have them in front of you. And so it's you sort of have to do some guesswork and you don't even know what
1: the amendments are necessarily to right, say what you know, I mean. group you one yeah. amendments, everyone in favor. Yeah, great. We'll take all the yeah. group ones. It's like, well, right. what did they say? We, say? Don't, yeah. we don't know. And you mm-hmm. know, other ones, they sort of debated a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, they, they voted to adopt this thing, and it was sent to Rome at the end of 2019 after they had this vote. And uh, permission approval has come there, none. And so there's this sort of holding pattern on the PPF sixth version. Because they we, sent
0: it in 2019, and it just hasn't been—you'd expect it to come back six months later, and it just hasn't come back. It just hasn't come back. And
1: meanwhile, the, the technical approval for the 20—originally um, the 2015— one, the fifth edition has now run over because that was only valid right. through twenty twenty, and so everyone's just kind of saying, "Well, where is the PPF? We need it." And so we we've, we've talked to a lot of people um, around the around the approval process, around the drafting process, um, you know, formators in different seminaries, bishops, that sort of thing, who you know are a all a lot feeding. of people kind of connected to the process. Yeah, in way people who are feeding into all of this. And one of the one of the sort of sticking points, one of the issues between Rome and. Uh, the USCCB on this is apparently the Propodudic Year, which the 2016 Vatican Ratio says, you know, this is this has got to be a year at, at least. least.
0: Every seminary must go through a Propodudic Year. It must be uh, no no less than one year, no more than two, and it must be at the beginning of their formation. Right. And it must be a dedicated year of time to spirituality. Right. And there's, and then there's sort of it's the job of the Episcopal Conferences to sort of make more rules, and then the job of seminaries to apply. Right. And there's, I mean, there's,
1: obviously it's a Roman document, so there's certain caveats about, you know, in special exceptions circumstances. can be made, and yeah, mm-hmm. whatever. But at least is what we've been able this to piece together. The ordinary together, way of things, right? Yeah. yeah. But from what we've been able to piece together, watching the tapes of the 2019 meeting where they were debating these amendments, albeit obliquely, um, talking to formators and bishops and staffers around all of this, um, what what's come out is the USCCB draft for the sixth version of the PPF, seems to want uh, a lot more flexibility on
0: what we're what they're calling the propedeutic phase rather than year. So that someone could do the propedeutic period, which I think the ratio talks about sort of these periods too, but someone yes. could do the propedeutic period at the same time, like that it might be possible, according to the PPF, for someone to do the propedeutic phase at the same time they're doing other other kinds of spirituality or other kinds of formation or something like that, that it could overlap with other kinds or that there could be other adaptations. Someone asked me, oh, could it possibly like be broken up into Summers? I don't think so. But th- again, there's a great deal of flexibility. And the idea of the USCCB was we don't want to be overly prescriptive here. Exactly. Uh, and, and
1: Cardinal Tobin said that in, in the sort of presentation, and the thing that the, the sort of guiding light of the whole drafting process was, was to be as least prescriptive as possible so that right. individual seminaries and dioceses or whatever could, could adapt things to the one. But it seems that Rome would like a little less um, the possibility of the less of adaptation. Yes, exactly. So
0: basically the conflict is, or the disagreement is, the U.S. bishops in their sort of implementation of the Roman rules are saying, yes, we understand that there should be a pro period, but we want our document to allow for kind of any number of ways in which it could be, yes, it should be done, yes, it has to be no more or less, you know, not, not less than a year, but... We want there to be flexibility so that it could potentially overlap with other kinds of formation, like years of classes, or that it could be broken up in other ways, um, in part because I think – and then Rome is saying, uh, as, insofar as we can tell, as our sources are telling us, Rome is sort of pushing back and saying, no, the idea is a dedicated year and not kind of um, – that the probiotic period would be, would be co-ter- coterminous or run concurrently with other things. This is essentially why the US ECB's PPF has not been approved, insofar as we can tell.
1: Right, and it's very weird that that we've reached this point because it's it, it's a very strange sort of bottleneck of um, discontent because Rome is all in favor of a dedicated propodutic gear. It's there in the ratio. Right, um, US bishops are clearly. Increasingly in favor of appropriating. There are hear. some
0: U.S. bishops who are going forward with this and saying it's great. The and biggest other seminaries, seminaries in the country are bringing this right. in, mm-hmm.
1: and you know, yeah. and we've talked to formators in seminaries that have them. We've talked to formators in seminaries that don't have them but would want them. And you know, like it's hard to find someone who doesn't want this. Yeah, but I think there might be a concern. I've been thinking about this. Well, Why no, would but there... there? are concerns, but I mean, and that's the interesting thing for me is the yeah. concerns seem to be very closely held, and they don't seem to. Um, they seem to be a minor it seems to be a minority concern that you know it does for example it does involve adding a year a calendar year onto formation right at the front you know so it's an extra years formation an extra years living expenses
0: an extra years you know whatever it's it's more it's an extra year if you're you know i think dioceses that are concerned about expense might be concerned oh it's going to cost us an extra year and dioceses that are concerned about vocations that don't have a lot of vocations might feel like Oh guys aren't going to want to come here and do an extra year and if we can make it shorter I I don't that's not my experience with seminarians I think I've never met a seminarian who was looking to get
1: out as fast as
0: he could it was like I need to yeah I mean I just need to I, I need to hammer through this I'd like to do the accelerated program Nobody's no, looking for the 2-year associate's degree well, in priestly sort of ministry really, Nobody's sort of I think just assessing things like that they feel called to be a priest and if they feel called to be a priest in their diocese they contact their diocese and you know um it's not like so I I'm not so sure about that I do think though that Money may well be a concern that it's more expensive. And then a concern that um, I think I think there could become a concern that, you know, um, for seminaries, which if you're a diocese which operates a seminary, you know, you have to um, keep that seminary open. And part of the way that you have to keep that seminary open is make sure that other dioceses continue to send their guys to you. And so if, um, if there are dioceses that are not doing it right now, I think there could be concerns. Well, if we add this into a whole year and other places are flexible or something like that you know, we may kind of lose dioceses. Now, that doesn't quite make sense to me because I think if it's universal for everyone, that doesn't remain concerned, well, but...
1: And also the, the general trend seems to be in the opposite direction. Like, when I was talking yeah. to Archbishop Cordiglione, he was really clear. Like, you know, I didn't just wake up one morning and say I'm going to install a propodutic here at the beginning mm-hmm. of seminary formation for St. Patrick's. he had been thinking about it for years. He would really started thinking about it at the beginning of last year. And that the first thing he did was he contacted all of the other bishops who send their guys to his seminary. He said, what do you think about this? Yeah, This is what we're batting around. And every single one of them, he said, was totally in a favor. Was saying, yeah, we need this. Do it. You know, bring it in. Like, but this is the thing is, you know, I I understand the the hypothetical concerns that could be raised about this. I understand why some places might have reservations about time or resources or money or space, you know, things like I get all that. But finding someone who actually seems to have these concerns is very difficult. And I'm not saying that to say, you know, well, they're, you know, they need to just come out of the woodwork and say they think. I just mean as a as a function of minority versus majority opinion. If you, find, if you have a hard time finding someone who has the concerns that you – clearly someone has out there, otherwise this Well, we know they exist. exist
0: because there's just right. the way the PDF is structured. If, and this. If is right. you have a hard time yeah. getting a hold of
1: someone who's got those concerns, it right. just strikes me as, well, this can't be a, a very widely held concern. It doesn't mean it's not a real concern. It just means it's clearly not a very widely held one, which is weird yeah. for a document that has already gotten, like, way more than two-thirds majority approval and all this stuff. I, I, I guess maybe I, – and I don't know, but – You know, I wonder if we're not going to see this back on the agenda at a future USCCB meeting. If like that's going to be the way they do this, is just say, "All right, well, we're we're stuck in a holding pattern here, so we're going to vote again, and we're going to just you know see if we can get two thirds consensus on what it is that Rome apparently wants us to make sure we
0: have." I do think that if there's if the if there's still an impasse of whatever the impasse is by the time of the, my expectation would be. If there is still an impasse at the time of the November meeting, which would effectively be, let's see, um, two years since the thing was um, since the bishops voted to approve the document, if there's still an impasse between Rome and the USCCB, I would expect it to come back to the USCCB that the Committee on Clergy, Consecrated Life, and Vocations would have, you know, kind of worked out some options or something that would better reflect kind of what the Holy See is asking and that there might be another vote on it or a vote on a section or something like that. But I do think if it's two years and nothing, and it's sort of like at loggerheads. Then at that point, I suspect that bishops will just be asking because I think there are dioceses that are waiting and seminaries that are waiting to say, "Look, we know that the new PPF is going to require a lot of changes to the way that we do things because that's the way the PPF works. It's the playbook for seminaries." And this will this just be like three hundred pages long or something. I, mean, I, I don't know how long it is, but
1: well, I read a uh, report from um, like somewhere. Somewhere, no, it was. Oh no, it was the USCCB's media shop. Oh. Um, at the time of the 2019 thing, they called it, like, it was 280-some pages or something like that. Okay. So, so it's yeah, a big so thing.
0: So it's a big thing, and it has a lot of details. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know there are seminaries that are saying, um, we, we know this is going to require a lot of changes of us, but we're kind of waiting until the PPF gets the recognition from Rome to implement them, which would include a probate I suspect. Um, and so um, I think for, if there are seminary rectors and bishops who have seminaries who feel like they're kind of in this holding pattern, eventually I think that it's probably going to come back up on the floor of the conference. Do we understand you know, uh, what we can do or what needs to be done to, to resolve this. Yeah. It you know, will be interesting it, to see. It will indeed be interesting to see. Well, Ed, word. Um, this is normally the point where I try and get you to talk about
1: baseball, but I don't need to because I already <laughs> got my own episode just talking about baseball.
0: You had a whole episode, <gasps> but that is, that is an excellent transition to what we're going to do now um, because you had an excellent. Um, uh baseball thing you interviewed a baseball player this week for a sort of bonus episode of the podcast a pitcher named Trevor Williams and uh, who is a a a practicing catholic who lives the faith and um and really kind of wanted to talk about the way that he perceives baseball as an opportunity to share spread the faith and these kinds of things and and uh, you had a, a really good conversation with him. I don't know if you got this feedback, but a lot of people told me that it was interesting to hear you kind of like uh, uh, kind of fanboying a little bit on the on the podcast. Um, so um, I so that is the feedback which what? I received. I don't,
1: what, what, hang on,
0: I did not hear anyone suggest that you were sort of Cronkite in your impartiality when you discussed baseball with the baseball fella.
1: I'm not impartial about baseball. Baseball is the <laughs> superior sport. There's no, this is look in the same way that you know we we practice impartial journalism to a point, but there are certain presuppositions that we make that the church's teaching that is the true. And the church are true, <laughs> yeah. and so I conducted that interview with exactly the same presuppositions that we bring to all our work that the teachings of the church are true and right and just. Baseball is the preeminent sport and has you know contained within it a kernel of natural and divine truth.
0: And you know our conversation went along those lines. I, okay. Well, um, one other thing that I want to talk about, and then I will have a little bit more baseball for you, um, in in a, in a manner of speaking. Um, next week, and we've talked about this on the show before, but but um, now it's we're getting to it. Next week is the is the first sort of court hearing, the first court appearance of former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick in these um, criminal charges for which he is tried. In the state of Massachusetts. So McCarrick is charged, you may remember this from the show or otherwise back in July, but McCarrick, who, um, as you all know, was laicized and uh, found guilty of um, committing various canonical crimes related to um, abuse, coercion, manipulation uh, uh, of minors and um, young priests and seminarians, was laicized, is no longer um, a, a cleric and in act uh, permitted to act. Um, Engage in ministry as a as a bishop or a priest or having rights to um, anything from the church. I mean, as a, effectively a layperson, um, and uh, uh, as a consequence of those things, um, but has not previously faced any criminal charges um, for this pattern of sexual abuse and coercion that emerged in two thousand eighteen and two thousand nineteen. Um, and the reason for that largely was because it was considered that the things for which McCarrick was accused had all passed the statute of limit the criminal statute of limitations in various states, um, but. Last month, a Massachusetts prosecutor saw to it that McCarrick was indicted and charged with three counts of um, indecent um, uh, assault and battery of a person over 14, which is effectively the sexual assault um, one of the sexual assault statutes uh, uh, of of Massachusetts, so uh, effectively sexual assault. Um, McCarrick was charged with three counts of sexual assault um, for allegations that he sexually assaulted a family friend, a teenage boy, at a wedding reception in Massachusetts in 1974. 1974, you say? That was a long time ago. I'm surprised it hasn't exceeded the statute of limitations. Well, so is everyone, but... It turns out that a judge in Massachusetts okayed the idea. Um, maybe I don't know how common this is. I haven't been able to get clarity on that. I've been asking some lawyers. But effectively, the idea is that because McCarrick didn't live in Massachusetts and left the state, the, the time he was not in the state, the game clock on the statute of limitations effectively paused. And so um, this alleged crime is still within the statute of limitations because of that pause. That's a unique thing um, uh, for the it seems to be a unique thing, again. although again, I haven't been able to understand how common this is in Massachusetts. But that means that McCarrick is charged with these crimes. They each carry with them a sentence of five years, which means that if he were found guilty of all three of them, he could theoretically be uh, sentenced to 15 years in prison, although since he's 91 years old, that seems unlikely. The first hearing of this trial um, will be next week, and it's something called an arraignment. And uh, and Ed, uh, Ed, do you want to explain what an arraignment is, or do you want me to explain what an is? I just feel like I've been talking for it's a while. It's basically the reading of the charges and the entering of a plea, right? It's the reading of the charges and an entering of a plea. And in Massachusetts, the entering of the plea is uh, essentially done sort of pro forma, so that the f- charges will be formally read against McCarrick, and then um, 99% of the time the clerk just enters a not guilty plea for you because there are a bunch of procedural reasons why it's not reasonable or even always plausible to plead guilty at the time of the arraignment. And then there's a discussion about whether or not you should be given bail, whether or not you should be, in, you know, held in jail until your trial, um, or whether or not you should be kind of released on your own recognizance and what conditions that should happen under. And um, and then uh, you're free to go. And then the next meeting of the trial is something called a pretrial conference, which happens before the trial, the, the actual sort of like thing that we think of the trial with the jury and um, opening statements and witnesses and those kinds of things. But um and that pretrial conference can be weeks and, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and even months sort of down the road, depending on what the court's schedule is. but this is the first time so it's it's the beginning of a process, but it 's a sort of slow beginning of a process but this is the first time again that McCarrick will see the inside of a criminal courtroom in the United States, and so it is uh, a big deal
1: it 's a very big deal i'm i I mean we've talked about this uh on the podcast before, and you know it, I'm fascinated to see how this is going to go. There are there are a lot of complicating factors uh, that are going to feed into this one that McCarrick is, you know, out of the state or has been living out of the state for quite mm-hmm. some time. So I'm unclear as to, uh, is he going to turn up in person? Um, is You know, can he be compelled to turn up in person? He's in his 90s. You know, what is his physical state? Is it plausible for him to travel and appear in court in person? I don't know. Is there going to be some kind of, um, you know, uh, argument made that he's not fit to stand trial because of age or infirmity? Uh, And then, you know, once you clear all of that, there's just the the, the difficulty—the well-established difficulty of proving um, charges of sexual assault uh, at all—is always very difficult because, you know, by by its nature. There aren't a lot of witnesses to incidents of sexual assault for you know obvious reasons, right. um, but in addition to that we're also talking about you know, this was fifty years ago. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, I, I don't know. I don't know how you successfully prosecute. Uh, a case like this. I'm I'm interested to see. I like, you know, like you said you um had no previous knowledge of or experience of the this sort of legal argument. Um or maybe it's maybe it's enshrined in statute of Massachusetts, I'm not sure. That, you know, the game clock on the Statute of Limitations pauses when the 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 alleged criminal leaves the state. Um you know, I there there's a lot else that's gonna come up in this trial that I'd like I like I do don't know how this is going to go. I've never seen this play out in court before and I am very interested to to see where it goes i think that it has the i think it has the the probability of opening up a lot of very painful and difficult wounds for people in the church particularly victim survivors i think that it's also going to involve the revisiting for catholics in the united states at large of decades of scandal now uh, around mccarrick and then before that the the so-called spotlight scandals and you know, the, the, everything that led up to the formation of the Dallas Charter and McCarrick's role in that—you um, know—I think all of it is going to make for hard reliving. Uh, I, I also think there's probably, likely, going to be—you know—as with all of these difficulties that I mentioned, dealing with historical allegations and things like that. I think there's going to be. Um, I think there's going to be an increased awareness amongst people watching this of the difficulty that institutions have, judicial institutions have in prosecuting historical claims. And I think it will probably um, give people some a, a better appreciation of the difficulty facing canonists in church tribunals when dealing with these historical cases, because a lot of times there's, you know... Uh, understandably, the desire is like, well, you know, a, a, a seemingly credible historical allegation has been made. What are you going to do about the guy? You know, how, you know, get on with it, convict him, you know, whatever. All, all of the stuff we, we had about McCarrick when he was first accused. And I think having um, a process sort of on display where the difficulties facing the prosecution uh, are, are sort of on show for everyone, I, I think it will probably Lead to some increased awareness of the difficulty in prosecuting these historical cases, which I, you know, I think would be good. Um, you know, I think would be beneficial for for us to have a wider cultural awareness of you know what are the problems in trying to deal with this so far removed from the actual events, which you know not only should inform people's understanding of how cases are proceeding now that are historical, but also underline and this is why we have to deal with it right away.
0: Well, that for sure. I mean, this is why we have to deal with it right away, but. I would add some caveats to that first of all, I'll just say kind of what my own prediction is, and then I'll come back because I, I I think there's a piece that you might not be thinking about, and this is what it and I'll get to there first of all, I, I'm not so sure that we're going to get much past the arraignment. Um, McCarrick is ninety one there's a pandemic out there. Um I think you know I, I think it is entirely possible. i kind of, I asked his lawyer who told me no comment, but I asked his lawyer if he was going to argue that McCarrick was competent to stand trial or whether he was going to raise sort of competency issues, in other words, raise the possibility that McCarrick is by virtue of some sort of cognitive decline, no longer capable to stand trial, and he he didn't comment. But I I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility that that argument might be raised. Now it would the seem the likely that, option. Maybe. It would seem the likely option, except that McCarrick's lawyer, a guy named Barry Coburn, has told reporters, you know, in in recent weeks, well, we're looking forward to making our case in court and these kinds of things. And that's not the sort of thing that you say if your strategy is going to be to say that your your client is not capable of, of uh, defending himself. So. I don't know. I'm sort of six of one, half dozen the other. But I, I would not be surprised if that happened even while Coburn has said things to the contrary. Um, would there be a plea deal? I, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I, I think it's possible that McCarrick might plead to some other charges. But the question is, would a prosecutor give McCarrick that option? Um, uh, would, McCarrick give, would would a prosecutor give McCarrick that option or do they want a trial? And it seems, given that everything that they've done, to get here, um, it, and the unusual nature of this, it seems like they probably won trial. So I'm not sort of thinking that a plea bargain is a high high degree of likelihood, although, again, not impossible.
1: Theodore McCarrick has not, to my knowledge, ever admitted to anything. I think the chances of him plea, pleading, pleading guilty to anything in a civil well, court you know, are he has very said, remote.
0: He has said, gosh, you know, if there's any way that I gave someone the wrong idea or something like that. Gosh, I feel terrible. About it. So if what, he plead guilty to misunderstanding, we're able to plead guilty to something in which he could at the same time maintain that he hadn't done anything nefarious. I think he, his lawyer would certainly encourage him to do so, but let's say that doesn't happen. And, and again, I'm not so sure the prosecutors are keen on that because this is not, you, you don't bring a case like this forward unless you think that you can prove it. It's a, it's an, it's a, it's a big, obviously a high spotlight case and these kinds of things. So there's that. So then the question becomes what happens in a trial. If there is a trial, Gosh, um, you know, a lot of people could be called to testify in various ways about the patterns and, you know, habits of life, and a lot more could be learned about McCarrick, but also could perhaps raise, you know, answer questions that have gone unresolved even about the way in which McCarrick was protected, you know, in the church, seems to have been protected in the church, and the way in which money played into some of these things, and a lot of things that, questions that just haven't been answered. So there's possibility that a great deal of information could come to the fore, but we'll see. I guess my point, I guess you know I've talked to a number of um of victim survivors of clerical sexual abuse uh, about uh, in in the in the in the past week about how they see this, and I'll have a story up about that at the pillar next week. But just as a little preview, you know, um your point about this is why these things need to be dealt with right away in the sense of this is why the church shouldn't sweep things under the rug or things like that. I agree. W- one thing that I don't think I had appreciated, sort of although in talking with victim survivors, it comes out over and over again about the way in which statutes of limitations work for these kinds of things is that it seems clear and it is consistently attested to by um, victim survivors of clerical sexual abuse or other kinds of sexual abuse that it can take a long time to be in a place where one is comfortable to, you know, raising these issues. Oh, sure. And, I, I, no, to um, be it, clear,
1: when I said the church needs to deal with it right away, I mean as soon
0: as they're made aware of it. Well, yeah, I think it's – yes, unquestionably, as soon as they're made aware of it. But one thing that victims – but that just I sort of reminded me of one thing that victim survivors told me, which is that you know, one one victim survivor told me that while she uh, of clerical sexual abuse told me that while she completely believes that you know people need to have the right of of defense and that you know an allegation of a crime needs to be proven in court definitively before someone is. Um, you know, found guilty, and she recognizes that proofs erode over time. She also said, you know, from her perspective, the statute of limitations can be such a hard thing because uh, just because a person may not be to the place of manifesting it. Uh, manifesting what happened by the time the statute of limitations r- ran out. And she wasn't saying something about recovered memories or other controversial things. She was just saying that the interior sort of processing of something deeply personal can take time to manifest. And that's, I think, demonstrated over and over. So her point was, she she said, I'm glad that McCare can be prosecuted. But she said for her, it's sort of, she hopes the case raises broader set of questions about the sort of justice of criminal statute of, lim- statutes of limitations on sexual abuse. And I, I mean, I... In the past, I think it would have said, yeah, but everyone deserves a right to a defense and proves a road over time. And and she conceded all that and at the same time said, yeah, but the, 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 it's systematically true that these crimes don't rise to the fore and for, for a period of time. I think that's true, too. So I hope that will be part of the discussion.
1: I, I'm sure it will. And I mean, there are various states, I think New York and Massachusetts are among them, uh, that have been having ongoing tinkering with their own statutes of limitations to widen the the point at which the clock can run in these Mm -hmm. cases to recognize that, you know, someone who is particularly a a victim survivor from abuse in their childhood or teenage years may need decades to come forward. And, you know, trying to adjust that window of, you know, well, when does the clock start? When does it stop? How does it run? All all of that stuff. And I think, you know, I I mean, I am a legal proceduralist. I, I, I do believe everybody needs a defense and there needs to be some kind of, you know, rules of justice that we all agree to play by um but i think also part of that is looking at fact patterns and saying well if this is the nature of these crimes and this is the way in which um they affect victims and there is a there is a clear pattern of well it takes this long sometimes for people to be able to come forward then that's something you just have to adjust the rules for the rules for right exactly
0: yeah Okay, well, we'll talk we'll, – the, the, the arraignment is next week on Friday, so I'm not sure if we'll have recorded the show before it or after it, but uh, we're going to be talking about it. So uh, so that's that. Um, Ed, before we conclude, um, you interviewed this Trevor Williams this week. You loved it. You loved talking to the baseball guy, and he um, and I like he to think is, he had fun too. And I like to think—I know you like to think that he had fun, too. I, I know that you are pretty—it's unusual for you to do an interview and say, like, we're friends now, but I know you're pretty— But he's a Met, right? Trevor Williams is a New York Met. He
1: uh, He is. So he in is.
0: honor of Trevor Williams and his, and your your appreciation for him and all things related to him, and therefore your appreciation for the New York Mets, what, we're going to do a little New York uh, Mets trivia now. Ed, and what are you ready? It, uh, <laughs> New York Mets trivia, because you obviously—you really think, well, of this guy, you were not— journalistically impartial in all ways and so i pr- can only presume that you love the mets
1: uh i, I maintain studious journalistic impartiality for example i noted uh calling the balls and strikes of his career that he was at the beginning of the season a pitcher for the chicago cubs which is objectively the best uh
0: they have the best record in baseball right now no no oh they, they don't. have the best they, record sort no, of they overall are, in history in no, and they are baseball superior there. Oh okay so they're so they're the best but it's not just demonstrated numerically by the wins and loss columns of of the of the scoreboards.
1: Baseball JD is is about way mm-hmm. more than results. Baseball is all about how you play the game. It is not mm-hmm. it's winning and losing is is very much a secondary concern. The real um school of virtue of baseball is all about it how you play. It, it's like the practice of law that the mm-hmm. the process mm-hmm. is its own justice. Yep. In baseball Everybody's way, a winner Anyway, but I did note that he started the season playing for the Cubs, and he was, on trade deadline day, um, frittered away, betrayed, and sent to
0: the New meet York vets. Meet the Mets, Mets, meet the Mets, which are right up and greet the Mets. A garbage expansion team. Okay, well, speaking of that, Ed, are you ready for Mets baseball trivia? Oh, God, okay. We're going to do a couple of Mets questions here, Ed, and we're going to see how you do. Ed. In what year were the New York Mets founded? We're going to start with an easy one. 70... F- no, 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 no. 60, now, you don't 60, like these, You don't care for these people. So I presume that you know a lot about them before you decided not to care 63? for 63? Oh, very, very close, Ed. I'm very, very sorry. 1962. Okay. Ed, the New York Mets colors, the colors of the team are blue and orange. Why? Mm, because it is ugly. I
1: I I sincerely do not know the reason why they... Oh, uh,
0: well, I'm going to tell you, and I bet you're going to find it interesting. Okay. The colors of the New York Mets, Ed, are blue and orange to pay homage to previous New York baseball teams, namely... The Giants and the Dodgers. The Giants and the Dodgers, my friend. Oh, well, I mean, it goes to... I mean, they are, as I said, an
1: expansion team. They are, you know... I I, I assume eventually they will also leave New York. I mean, every every team eventually... Leaves New York and moves to California
0: that's Ed, the Mets played their first Two seasons in which stadium? Polo grounds? Polo grounds, that is Correct, you are now What are you, uh, one for three? One for three Well, that's not very good, is it?
1: Well, I was within 12 months of the year they launched I feel okay about that I didn't know the reason for their colors
0: Well, okay Alright, Ed, let's see what we got Do you want it to get a little bit tougher? Sure how many games, Ed? You seem to think these people are not very good at baseball. How many games, Ed, did the New York Mets lose in their first season, 1962?
1: Uh. 94? 120. They lost 120 games in their first season?
0: Yeah, but they won forty, which I mean, 40 that was games. a good I mean, year. Win forty baseball games, major league baseball games. That's that not, was a very good that's year. Not, that's not. easy. And what is the New York Mets curse? The no, what they call the no hitter curse.
1: Uh, the the curse of the New York Mets is that they are a baseball team in New York, and I mean <laughs> they they live in the shadow of the Yankees and are haunted by the ghosts of the Dodgers and the Giants. I mean, I. I, in what way is this franchise not cursed, J.D., I ask you?
0: <laughs> oh, boy. Um, the Mets uh, have the longest no-hitter drought in major – one of the longest no-hitter droughts in Major League Baseball. There was a very, very long time in which Mets had a no-hitter drought, and here's the really interesting about that. Um, there are a bunch of guys who were throwing no-hitters um, came to the Mets. This is the no hitter curse. Throwing no hitters like nobody's business. Came to the Mets and stopped doing it. Huh? Who was the first of those pitchers? And then left the Mets and 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 started throwing no hitters again. Started throwing it. Yeah. Who I was the
1: sincerely, first? I couldn't begin. I have this is totally unknown to me. I don't. I, I His, don't know.
0: Baseball card. If you were a baseball card collector in the '90s, as you and I kind of were, this was a sort of pitcher's baseball card that you wanted. But it it actually showed up in a lot of packs. I mean, it was kind of like an exclusive card that you could actually get.
1: Huh. Well, so here's the funny thing is I, I did collect baseball cards in the late eighties and early nineties, and I still have a lot of late eighties and early nineties baseball cards. Um, but when I was a kid, so ingrained was my loathing for the New York Mets <laughs> as the North. This is not an exaggeration. I swear this is true. That there would have been I, Rangers. He would have probably been a Ranger when you were. So getting Nolan cards.
0: Ryan, I'm guessing Nolan Ryan it is um, indeed.
1: It, but yeah, I, when I would open a pack of cards, um, I would flip through it and obviously separate out all the Cubs and then the second team I would look for is the Mets. And I would throw the Mets cards away. <laughs> now, it was okay. eventually explained to me that what I was doing was technically, like, increasing the relative value of a New York Mets right, card right, because true, I was taking it. But I didn't care. It felt it felt <laughs> like the right thing to do. I mean, they ha- they have Trevor Williams now. So that is good.
0: Trevor Williams, great guy. You know, so good player on that this, team. This will be the very last question for you about the Mets. Uh, and it's actually about the Yankees. Which former New York Yankees All Star um, unexpectedly and surprisingly played his final season with the New York Mets? <sighs> Maybe while he was playing with them, he stole a picnic basket. Oh, Yogi Berra! Yogi Berra, indeed! Ding, 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 ding! Well done, Ed. You know, he's from You your really part of the world. know your Mets. You must be a real fan. and Have Trevor you ever been to Yogi Berra be Stadium? Uh, no, I don't know what that is or anything. Yogi Berra Stadium is the
1: is the college baseball and. Um, I mean, they they aren't technically a ranked team because the, it's dependent. But the the AAA equivalent independent um, baseball stadium of the New Jersey Jackals on the oh, then I've been there on the campus of Mount Clare State University. I, I thought it was fairly Dickinson, but okay, no, no, it's Mount Claire State. Mount, I've been Mount there Claire. several times. It's a great stadium. Yeah, um, it's great. I've, okay, you know, I've been there a lot of times.
0: Listen, guys. Um, I hope you have enjoyed Mets Trivia and this podcast as much as I have. I don't do this often, but um, I'm going to do it right now. Here's the deal. If you like this podcast, we would like you to become a subscriber to The Pillar. So um, if you like this podcast and you listen to it every week and you're not a subscriber to The Pillar, please consider it. Go to PillarCatholic.com, hit subscribe, and sign up so that we can keep bringing you this podcast and keep bringing it to you um, and, and to many other people. I started that sentence without another without a closer on it. I don't have a good thing for this, but, you know. You don't have do a good thing. closer? Do, do the, I don't have a good closer. I need Nolan Ryan. Go, uh, or whoever, Mariana Rivera. Go to pillarcatholic.com, subscribe to the thing so you can hear Ed and I continue to do the kind of thing that you like listening to us do. Thank you. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor in Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by Ed, Mr. Matt Condon. Ed, say toodaloo. Go, Cubs. Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Dun, 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 dun. Stacy, can I come over?